a number of years ago, there was a young woman in our community who was very active in one of our outreach ministries. Now, I'm going to purposefully make my comments about her vague to protect her privacy. She was about 30 years of age, brilliant, had this prestigious, high-paying, enviable career. And some of us were in conversation with her one day, and someone asked her, do you like your job? And she said, well, I, I don't dislike it. And then she proceeded to talk about how she sensed God leading her to go overseas. And, and she described a kind of work that would be important, but far less pay, far less prestige. And she said, um, not only do I sense God leading me in this direction, but I also really want to go for it. And so someone in the circle asked her, well, why don't you just quit your job and go? And this woman, who is 30 years of age, says, I can't because my parents won't let me. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, she's 30 years old? She's an adult, she can make her own decision. Well, she came from a very traditional family and culture where if you're 30 years old, you're a woman and you're unmarried, you're expected to follow the desires, obey the desires of your parents. Barack Obama, in his memoir, A Promised Land, describes how, as president, when a problem would come across his desk, it was there because no one else could solve the problem. If someone else could have solved the problem, it wouldn't be on his desk. So he knew that there was no perfect solution to the problem before him. He knew that whatever decision he made, he would be upsetting a group of people somewhere. He said there was no perfect decision to make, but there were better decisions and there were worse decisions that could be made around the issue. And like the former president, and like this woman in our community, there may be times when we are faced with something where we feel that there is no perfect solution, that no matter how we decide, no matter what we do, we're going to disappoint our parents or someone important in our life. We might be saying no to our own deep desires or feel like we're even disappointing God through our course of action. Just because we make a decision to follow Jesus in the way of God, it doesn't mean that we will be spared these difficult at times, excruciating decisions. But we do have guidance in Scripture on how to order our loyalties. In the book of Exodus, as part of the Ten Commandments, God says, honor your father and your mother. In other parts of Scripture, including the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 and 6, we are called by God, if we are married, to love our spouse, and if we are parents, to love our children. These are good desires, and most of us want to do this. But in Luke 14, 25 and 26, Jesus says these words. Let's set up the context. Verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and then turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother 
wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And as we consider this text, may the Holy Spirit, as Craig was praying earlier, give us guidance and wisdom and courage to understand this, but also to live this out. So we're in a series on the paradoxes of Jesus, and we're going to explore this paradox today. When Jesus asks us to hate our father, mother, spouse, children, family members, friends, it's a paradox because it contradicts our good desire and the commands of Scripture to do these things. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hate my parents? I like the sound of that. <laughs> that's easy. I already hate them. Uh, unfortunately for you, um, that's not what Jesus means at all. When Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, such a person cannot be my disciple. What does he mean? Now, we know that when Jesus calls us to hate our parents, spouse, children, siblings, friends, and so forth, he doesn't mean this literally. How do we know this? Because in other parts of scripture, God commands us, as we've seen, to honor our parents, and if we're parents ourselves, to love our children. And Jesus never contradicts anything in scripture that God directly affirms. We also know that Jesus doesn't mean his words literally when he talks about hating our family and friends, because in other parts of scripture, he calls us to honor our parents. For example, in Matthew 15, 4, and to love our children. For example, Luke 18, 15 through 17. When he calls us to hate our parents and hate members of our family, he doesn't mean this literally. He's using a literary device called hyperbole or deliberate exaggeration to emphasize a point. His point being, if you decide to follow me, you must make me the object of your highest allegiance, of your greatest love. And in comparison to me, your love for your family and others may seem like hate. Now, in the Hebrew, in the, one of the original languages of the Bible, the word hate has a wider, larger semantic field or field of meaning than the word hate has in English. So for example, in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 29, we read about Jacob's relationship with his wife Rachel and his wife Leah. And we're told in Genesis 29, verse 31, that Jacob hated his wife Leah. That's the literal word in the Hebrew. In the older versions of the Bible, like the King James, the Hebrew word is translated hate. In the more modern versions of the Bible, like the New International Version, it, the word is not translated hate because the translators know that that will mislead the readers. The Bible says Jacob hated Leah, but we know that Jacob did not hate his wife Leah in the way we understand hate. Jacob was courteous to his wife Leah, respectful. He was even kind to her. But we do know that he loved his wife Leah less than he loved his wife Rachel. 
And in biblical idiom, in biblical phrases, the word hate can sometimes mean hate as we understand hate, but it can also mean, depending on the context, to love less. And when Jesus says, if you follow me, you're going to be called to hate your family and friends, he doesn't mean it literally. He means that compared to your love for me, you will love them less. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he's not calling us into a life of moderation. You know the phrase that you've heard, all things in moderation? That actually is not in the Bible. I don't know exactly where it came from, but it's not in the Bible. Jesus does not call us to moderation. He calls us to a radical commitment. Sometimes you'll hear people talk as if there are two tiers of Christians, the ordinary, run-of-the-mill type, and then the committed, hardcore Christians. But according to Jesus, there is no such thing as an ordinary, not-committed Christian. A not-committed Christian is an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to a full, wholehearted commitment. Now, sometimes that commitment causes division in our families, but Jesus's purpose in coming into our lives and into the world is not to divide families and communities. In the final book of what's called the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 6, we read that the prophet Micah prophesies that with the coming of the Messiah, with the coming of the anointed Christ figure, he would turn the hearts of parents toward their children and the hearts of children toward their parents. He would unite families. But there are times, as Jesus says in Luke 14, when our commitment to Jesus creates a rift, a division in family life. So for example, let me talk about Aisha, one of my former colleagues. Some of you may remember her. Aisha was on our staff along with her husband, Ken Pierce, who was one of our pastors. Ken, some years ago, was called to serve as the head minister of a church in Richmond, so they're serving there now. Aisha, if you remember her, um, came from a Muslim family, as you may recall, and she was raised to live as a faithful Muslim. From the time she was a little girl, she was going to the mosque, being taught how to pray. She fasted during Ramadan. She even went on holy pilgrimages. When she was finishing high school, uh, she was living in, in, in uh, Indonesia with her family, and her father decided to send her to a small Christian college because he knew a professor there. This uh, college uh, is located in the United States. And when Aisha got there, uh, she discovered that one of the requirements to graduate from that school was to take a class in the Bible. And Aisha felt, well, I'm at a disadvantage because I've never really read the Bible. I don't understand the Bible. So she approached one of her fellow students and friends named Ken Pierce and said, Ken, <laughs> would you teach me the Bible? Well, he was more than glad to teach her the Bible. And to get to know her in other ways too, although that's a different story. <laughs> and so they're studying the Bible together and they come to the Gospels and Aisha reads about Jesus and his claim to be the unique son of God and how he is crucified and how 
He claims to be resurrected, or his followers claim that he's resurrected. She has a hard time believing this, so Ken Pierce gently challenges her and says, if Jesus is who he says he is, he could reveal himself to you, right? She says, yes. And so Ken invites her, why don't you pray to Jesus and ask him to reveal himself to you if he's really real? What do you have to lose? And Aisha thought, I have everything to lose. Because if I begin to follow Jesus, I may lose my entire family as a Muslim. So with great courage, Aisha begins to pray to Jesus, saying, if you're really who you say you are, show yourself to me. Two months later, Aisha is alone at night in her dorm room, and she tells me later that Jesus actually came to her. She said, I I think he came to me in physical form, but it could have been a strong vision, but he clearly came to me and said, I am who I claim to be. And so I felt like I had no real choice but to follow him. And as a result of following Jesus, for four or five years, she was estranged from her family. Now, thankfully, they're back in contact. But her decision to make Jesus first cost her some of her family relationships for a number of years. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, back in the 1920s, was a teenager growing up in Germany. And he had this desire to study theology and to one day become a pastor. But his dad, who did not believe in God, his dad, who was a leading psychiatrist in Germany, was against it. Dietrich's older brother, Karl, was a scientist who was working with, of all people, Albert Einstein. His older brother was a scientist who was one of the first people to work to split the atom. And his dad and his older brother wanted Dietrich to become a scientist because they saw in their their, um, son, younger brother, a brilliant scientific mind. They wanted him to pursue science or a career in law because his other brother, Klaus, was a top lawyer at Lufthansa Airlines. But Dietrich followed what he sensed was God's call, even though he experienced the disapproval of his family. He became a pastor, a writer of significant influence, and as some of you know, in response to the call of God on his life, he began to lead a resistance movement against Hitler, and for playing that role, he was eventually martyred, executed. Sometimes we make a career decision that we believe is God's will for us, and we experience division, rejection in our own family. Let me offer a similar illustration coming from a different angle. I have a friend in Montreal who is a scientist and a professor of science. And years ago, when uh, she was a young adult, uh, she sensed God calling her to study science and become a scientist. And she shared this with her parents, who were missionaries. And they said, we're so disappointed in you because we wanted you to serve the Lord. Now, she felt like she absolutely was going to serve the Lord as a scientist. And she was correct in that in that belief, but her parents felt that the only way she could serve the Lord was as a missionary. So as she embraced God's call upon her life to be a scientist, she experienced the disapproval of her parents. Now, the opinion of a parent when it comes to 
their child's romantic life, future spouse, can be very important, legitimate, and helpful. But there are times when a parent will object to their child's romantic partner or potential future spouse for superficial reasons. They don't make enough money in their job or their career path isn't prestigious enough. Or if the parents are from a traditional world, they can object by saying, ah, but your partner is of the wrong race or not of the right bloodline. And in making a decision regarding their partner that they feel is in the will of God can estrange them from their parents. Sometimes a parent will also say, if their child is of a certain age, you need to get married, you must get married. But the child feels called to be single, at least for now. There's no suitable person around to marry. And sometimes when a child chooses the will of God, they will experience the disapproval or rejection of parents, family members. Now, the flip side can also occur. This dynamic can go in reverse order. So I know someone, I'm acquainted with someone who years ago went on a trip with his family to Africa. It was their first time on the continent. And there in Africa, they saw staggering levels of poverty and suffering. And so when they returned to their home in Southern California, the father of the household, the husband said, you know, I feel convicted to sell our house so that we have more to give to those really in need in our world. His wife and his kids who were on the trip were totally on board. But when other people found out about his decision, they started saying, you're crazy, you're nuts to sell your house and move to a smaller house and it's not fair to your kids. And this guy who's quite bold responded by saying, you're saying I'm crazy? In light of eternity, maybe you're crazy. Maybe you're crazy for not giving more, for not serving more, for not being with your creator more. And not only did he give generously, did they give generously, but he also gave his kids an example of how to live and give generously. And I know that's a great gift because my own parents gave me that priceless gift of being an example of people who lived and gave generously to God and God's purposes. Now, when we put God first, and, and, and the point of that last illustration was if his kids and wife were against uh, the decision to sell the house that could have caused the rift, it didn't. But when we put God first in our life, in our heart, make him the object of our highest love, it can seem to us that, well, wouldn't that shortchange the other people, our family members, our friends? It may seem that way, but Ironically and paradoxically, often the very opposite happens. So for example, there's a person named Sky Jathani who lives in Chicago. He's a writer. I have the privilege of collaborating with him later this year. I'm really looking forward to being with him. Sky says that when he reflected on this passage in Luke 14, 26, that we've been looking at, as an adolescent, uh, he wrote uh, these, these words later. Uh, in retrospect. He wrote, the first time I began to wrestle with this idea, I was a teenager, that is the idea of hating his parents. 
in response to Jesus' words. I, I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. It didn't start to really make sense to me until I was 18 years old and I came home one day. I fell down on the sofa and my dad was there in his lazy boy recliner watching TV with me. Out of nowhere, he turned off the TV and said, we need to talk. I have cancer and it's serious. My dad's a doctor. So when he says he, he's got cancer and it's serious, it's serious. My dad ended up living but that moment sent me into a time of, ref of reflection. I began reevaluating my priorities. I thought, I love my parents. I am called to honor my parents. Those are non-negotiable. But who do I owe my allegiance to, my greatest allegiance to? The fact of the matter is, whether it's now or later, one day my dad's going to be dead. Whether it's now or later, one day my mother will be dead. They're mortal. So who am I living my life for? Who should I live my life for? Ultimately, my allegiance does not belong to my parents. My allegiance belongs to the one who made them. And the irony is that today I have a better relationship with my parents than I've ever had. But part of that is because I've learned to keep that relationship in its proper place. To not expect more from my parents than I ought and to not to give more to my parents than they're due. To give God what is God's, and to my dad what is dad's. That's a hard thing to do, but that is what Jesus is speaking of here. Who does your allegiance lie with? And as Sky has described, the irony, the paradox is, that when he put God first in his life, he actually became a better son to his parents. We may think that if we put God first in our life, we'll shortchange our family and friends and the people in our world. But usually the very opposite happens. We have more to give those people. A few weeks before I got married, I had lunch with a friend of mine who's considerably older than I am, who had been married for a long time. And over lunch, this friend asked me, could I give you some advice about your, your marriage, your upcoming marriage? I said, sure, I'd love some advice. He said, if you're given children one day, if you have children one day, love your spouse, love your wife more than your children, because the greatest gift you can give your kids is a stable home environment. And then my friend said, and when you get married, as a married person, love God even more than your wife. Love God more than your spouse, and you will become a better spouse to her, more loving and more faithful. So the paradox is that when our loves are in proper order, we actually have more love to give those on the outer rungs, so to speak. We're not shortchanging them. In most cases, we're actually able to offer them more love. When we put Jesus first in our life, we receive his love and have more love to give. We're turned toward God. We're more exposed to that love. We have more love to give others. And when we put Jesus first in our life, and all the other relationships fall into their proper place, we also avoid the strain of making a relationship 
too important of idolizing a person, of expecting something from them that they cannot deliver. When we put Jesus first and place our other relationships in their proper order, we're also less likely to find ourselves desperate for someone, desperate for a particular relationship and, and, and smothering that person, which ironically doesn't keep that person for us or protect the relationship. It tends to undermine it and sometimes destroy it. Jesus is called in scripture, the Prince of Peace. And Jesus does bring peace to our lives and often to our relationships. But sometimes, as was true for Dietrich Bonhoeffer and my scientist friend in Montreal, Jesus also divides people. Now, if you find yourself wanting to follow Jesus and then experiencing the disapproval of your parents or the rejection of someone important in your life. You can try and find peace by misapplying Jesus's words, misunderstanding them and saying, okay, I will, I will hate my parents or I will hate that person. They're terrible. They're so superficial and stupid. And if you are rejected, if someone turns their back on you, you can choose to try to find peace by hardening your heart and saying, you know, they're, they're, they're so flawed, so awful. I'm better off without them in my life. But trying to find peace by hardening your heart and turning away can be dangerous because you may find it more difficult in the future to love others. There is a better path. And that better path that leads to freedom and peace and wholeness is by making Jesus the object of your highest love and then letting all your other loves fall into proper place around that central love. St. Augustine, one of the church fathers, in his classic memoir called Confessions, wrote that the path to peace and freedom and wholeness comes from rightly ordering our loves. When the sun is at the center of our solar system, all the planets find their proper place in orbit around the sun. And when the Son of God, when God is at the very center of our lives, all our other loves will find their proper place around that central love. If we put a human relationship at the very center of our being, and then that person disapproves of us or rejects us or we lose that relationship because they die, we will be crushed. But if God is at the center of our lives, if Jesus is our most important relationship, and then we are disapproved of by someone important, rejected, we lose that relationship for whatever reason, it will be painful. It may be profoundly painful, but we will not be utterly crushed because at the center of our life is the relationship that is secure, that ultimately cannot be shaken. So how do we become people who make God, make Jesus our first love? We talk regularly around here about the importance of silence and solitude, ideally some of that each day. And in that space, we can affirm, among other things, God, you are my first love, and pray that that would be so.
How else can we make God our first love? By gathering as we are here in worship, some of us gathering online, and through our songs, and through our prayers, and through our response to God's word, offering God our highest praise. And finally, we can become those who put God first in our life when we are awakened to just how greatly we are loved by the one who made us. God loved us first and put us first as God became a human being, one of us, lived a perfect life, and then voluntarily laid his life down on a Roman cross, absorbing our sins and shame so that they could be washed away, so that we could enter into a relationship with God and become like God. And when we realize that God loved us first and put us first by giving us everything, we can respond by saying, God, you are first in my life. You have my greatest loyalty, my greatest love. You are at the very center of my existence. Let's pray together. If this prayer expresses your heart, I invite you to pray it. And if you're not ready to pray it, there's no pressure to do so. But if this simple prayer expresses your heart, you can pray it after me in your spirit quietly. God, help me to love you. If that expresses your heart, you can pray it. God, help me to love you. Give me the courage and the wisdom and the affection to make you the very center of my life. If you want to pray that, you can. Give me the courage, the wisdom, and the affection to make you the center of my life. And then finally, and God, with you at the center of my life, may all my other loves find their proper place, their proper orbit around your love, around my love for you. And may it be so in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.